Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. We're at this new year. And I have been just seeking God probably more than ever. Lord, what are you saying? And for the first time, I don't know, probably a couple of decades, we've entered a year without a theme. In other words, we pray fast and seek the Lord and we get a theme for, you know, what we feel like. Don't have one. Um, I don't have one, only with the exception of the need for us to be intentional. What we've learned from this last year is that unforeseen circumstances, that is, those we did not see coming five minutes ago, five weeks ago, or five years ago, certainly, they grab us and they derail our life. For weeks and weeks, I'm going to add something to the little Isaiah 8 meme that, or had an interesting conversation about that last week. Mantra, whatever. And please hear me. Please hear every word today. I'm going to try to sweep things into a pile. Week number one, we came to the table of the Lord. And as we celebrated the table of the Lord, we celebrated the opportunity to leave behind stuff we needed to leave behind. We forgave. I had some of the most fascinating conversations about from people who were touched by that. And one person, individual said, in, in particular said, I had to pick up the phone and call a person I hadn't spoken with in years. We didn't like each other. We'd had some life events that put us at odds. And um, this person said to me, he said, coming out of that, I knew what I had to do. And so before I had enough time to think about it, I picked up my phone and called this person and you can't believe what happened. But he said, I made the decision that I was going to leave that behind. I was going to forgive and going to release that. There were things that I refused to carry forward into 2021. Uh, last week, we revisited again Isaiah chapter 8 and the passage of Scripture there because so much is happening, the inauguration this week. And by the way, I have always, I have strived to find a balance, to not come in here every week and preach from cultural context, in other words, the, the greatest thing that comes in, oh, the sky is falling. But on the other hand, not to come in here and share faith as though we are not aware of what's going on in the world. Everybody got what I'm saying there? In other words, I'm not going to come running in here falling apart because something's happened in culture. But neither are we going to live in denial and pretend that those things are not happening in culture. Everybody got that? Faith is not living in denial. 
Faith is looking reality of this life right in the face and saying, but here's how I will live anyway. Faith, as I said to you last week, faith is worship's first response to holy. Whether that sinks in or whether you hear the whole teaching on that or not, I want you to say that back to me because we need to get some things sort of swept into a pile here on this third Sunday of the new year. Faith is worship's first response to holy. I'm going to say it one more time, and then I want you to say it because I am animating worship as if I'm making it a, a being of sort. I know in that. Faith is worship's first response to holy. Say that with me, please. Faith is worship's first response to holy. Once you made a determination that God, at some level, his word was going to be the source of what your life would be. Once you made that determination and you responded to him, that was your first expression of faith. But it was also your first expression of worship. Because everything that happened prior to that moment was a mental acknowledgement. We studied, again, a couple weeks ago, how the demons acknowledge that God is whole, God is one, but they don't have faith. They don't have faith. And that passage of scripture that says, faith without works is dead, it finally, for 40 years, I've been teaching that the word works was referring to the old covenant and in keeping with the majority of the commentary, commentators. Um, but in that passage of scripture, beloved, it on both sides of the reference to the demons, there is faith, faith. Now you say you have faith and I'll tell you, I'll show my faith by my works. And he says, you say you believe, even the demons believe and shudder, believe that God is one. And then he comes right back after that verse, but faith without works is dead. Lord, help me here in this understanding. I've read that, taught that, quoted that so many times, only to come to understand that a dead faith is the kind the demons have. They acknowledge God as whole and complete, but they don't invite that to be an influence on their life. Demons don't worship. Demons know and acknowledge God is holy, holy, holy. Everybody get what I'm saying? We, we got the kind of faith that looks to God, acknowledges He's holy, watch this, and then fails to invite the influence of holy on their life is dead faith. I want to say it again. Faith that looks and says, God, you're whole, complete, lacking nothing, the source of all that is, but I'm not going to invite you to have any influence on my life. That's a dead faith. That's the faith they're talking about. At what areas of our life then do we find the world encountering us? <laughs> Here comes the statement. In Isaiah chapter eight, it says, if you fear what they fear, then their holy becomes your holy, their sanctuary becomes your sanctuary, and then here's the new addition to the end of it. And I worship what they worship. You, you really need to sort of tattoo that on your forehead in reverse image and see it every morning. When I fear what they fear, I will make holy, what, what is that? I will determine 
that their source, everybody, the world's falling apart right now because of the events in Washington, D.C. Or so we would be told. And beloved, things may happen that are not fun. I get that. But when we step back, when we step and say we're going to allow and let me say this you can just leave that statement right there if you would please Amanda for us to get that in the Old Testament the word fear is translated five ways two ways predominantly I've told, we've talked about this in the past weeks but I want to refresh this the, that it is the psycho, psychological and emotional response to a threat that's a, a very simplistic fear. Something's going to happen. But the, the other primary way that that word is interpreted, and it happens in the New Testament as well, is in reverence towards God. And here's the thing that we don't like to come to terms with. What we fear the most informs our worth. That, that's a reality. What we fear the most informs our worth. And so here's a verse that we don't like in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus was offering some clarity. And I know you don't have that verse, but you don't have to just listen to me. He says, you're fearing the wrong thing. He says, if you're going to fear something, fear him who has the capacity to destroy your soul. And it's like, okay, well, great. Is he abdicating fear? No, because First John said, perfect love, perfect love. Perfect love is only found one place, by the way in God. Perfected love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So that's great. But there's no either, let me give you an example. The human being in this world that brings me the greatest sense of reinforcing my sense of personal worth, the human being, okay, I'm saying that, is my wife, Brenda. She prays for me. She's committed to me. There's no one's words or opinion I value more. None. Not a soul. I do get the fact, oh goodness, so many things to talk about, that perhaps not the whole world has a marriage like that, but we've pursued it intentionally. Neither one of us are weak-willed wimps who wake up in the morning waiting for the other one to tell them what to do. Not a chance, okay? Very strong will. So we don't just wander into this utopian marriage because, great, we've never had a, an argument. We've had a thousand arguments. We've been married 41 years. After 41 years of a thousand arguments, she's finally come to the determination how desperately wrong she's been. And so we don't have a lot of those anymore. She's just conceded to the fact that God has graciously conveyed to her that I'm right. You ever, you ever heard psychotic delusion? I just had one. Just was right there. Just that. But there's nobody's. <laughs> Brenda's praying hard right now. She's Jesus help me. You know that. Just the thought of the fact that today might be her last breath and she would be gone from my life.
probably nothing is more disruptive to my soul than that thought. Nothing. Nothing. And accordingly, she is also the voice, I said human, very clearly, that brings the most worth, worth-ship, worth-shaping influence to my life. Everybody get that close association to what we fear. So, but here's the good news of Scripture. The Bible says that unlike the world, their fear becomes what they worship. That's not true for us. There are things that do cause fear for us, but that doesn't inform who we are. God said in that verse of Scripture in Isaiah 8, I am your holy place. I am your sanctuary. They can fear what they want. Don't fear. See, it's here where I've got to really get this into a pile because I've had something happen this week, and you're going to laugh at this. But it's God remind me. Again, we are a Pentecostal church. Let me define that for you. I've wrestled with that a lot because I've always thought there was some, uh, an edge of arrogance for those who identify as Pentecostal. Because I grew up hearing we're a full gospel church, we're a full spirit church, we are a Pentecostal church, all is being synonymous. So full gospel. I mean, I heard that's printed in literature. And denominational literature from the Church of God, the Assemblies of God, primary denominations that I grew up in. And so as a child, when you hear full gospel, you begin to wonder. I always, I think in pictures, so I always thought that surely on the signs out front, there were no, not a lot of electronic or digital signs. 40 years ago, there were some, but mostly were these ones painted signs, you know, or they had little stick-on letters that could be changed. But I, I always thought, why isn't there a thermometer on the sign so that you can know? You're not not getting me, okay. I thought Pentecostal church, you know, a little red thermometer on it. See, everybody just knows. When they said, this is as a kid, I was thinking, well, if, if that's full gospel, then I guess the Baptist are what, half? Methodist, 30%, what thermometer do they get? Catholics, please. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying this is how I grew up, and I'm hearing full gospel, full gospel. So if you're not in a full gospel, you're only a part gospel church and full spirit. So it's part spirit, full whatever. But here's the distinct difference, and it's where we are really going to increasingly focus on the body life here. And on Sundays as we gather, and Lord help me stay focused. But when asked, what does it mean? I believe that Pentecostal, full spirit people, first of all, there's a term called cessationist, mean cease, something ceased, cessation, for something to stop. And there is a line of teaching that spiritual gifts ceased, stopped, or died with the death of the apostles. We are not a church that believes that. We believe in the dynamic expression of spirit gifts at work in this body, and ever more so as we see that day drawing near. We do not believe it ceased. We believe that. And so when I was involved in a dialogue with a couple of pastors, I said, I believe that 
Pentecostal full spirit because it was a question about Pentecostal preaching. And of course, I love words, so I wanted to know what they meant, so I dug in. But let me save you that whole conversation. I believe it is that kind of preaching that anticipates what happened in Acts chapter 2. And I don't mean just the, the Holy Spirit fell, but in the second half of Acts chapter 2, Peter, the great poster child for failure, after having been filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues in the upper room, people walk by and say, you guys have lost your mind. He stands up and offers explanation, and then he preaches the first gospel sermon after the death of Christ. He preaches the first gospel sermon from the porch of the upper room. 3,000 people are saved. The Holy Spirit falls on them. You see, beloved, Pentecostal and Spirit-filled worship is worship that believes when the Word is presented, the Holy Spirit is going to be active immediately and dynamically making that Word happen. Please hear me. you got to get this. That in these worship services, more and more, if I preach the same thing over and over for 52 weeks this year, I promise you I will. Because it's this. If, we, if you think you're going to come here and simply receive something that I have to say or someone else at a cerebral level, dissect that take go away and add it to your philosophical equation it may influence your life to some extent but you will not be transformed transformation happens by reason of the Holy Spirit when he shows up and he takes that declared word and in that second Corinthians chapter 3 passage he brings home the prophecy of Jeremiah that said there's a day coming when by my spirit I will no longer write words of my law on tablets of stone but I'm gonna write them on your heart and he says when I write them on your heart you will be transformed we need transformation so I have of all of my one-line definitions for worship and I have several several that are still good but I'm finding where 2nd Corinthians 3 and Romans 12 meet and that's this See, only two places in the Bible where the word transformation shows up. They're both used by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I do not think that the concepts are disconnected. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, just look at those with me. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Somebody shout amen right there because the Spirit of the Lord is in this house. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, looking into the mirror, are being, what? Transformed to the same image from glory to glory. I could live in this verse forever. I have for the last year. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. He's saying it comes from Jesus. We studied this two, three months ago. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. He says what's going on comes from Jesus Christ. Listen to me, beloved. We have to get this. It comes from Jesus Christ who is positioned at the throne. Please, everyone, look at me. He's advocating. I wish I could put your name in the blank. 
Chip, he's advocating on your behalf. Karen, on your behalf. Nixon, on your behalf. On my behalf. He's advocating their redemption, calling forth, redeeming constantly more stuff in Tom, in Brenda, in you. That is the ongoing and act. See, please get this. He doesn't need to show up before the throne of God every day and say, God, I'm here to remind you one more time that I died and before you whack, wax the whole planet. No, it is an ongoing expression of advocacy before the throne of God. It is a never ceasing. His presence constantly calls forth from the heart of the Father. That's what it means. Calling forth an outcome not presently under consideration. Do you understand that Jesus is at the throne of God advocating on your behalf and my behalf ceaselessly? He will not stop until we see him face to face. That's the only time that he will leave that position. But as he begins to call forth things just as from the Lord that verse says the spirit it comes from the Lord John 16 Jesus would say I'm going to go to the father when I do the Holy Spirit who is with the father is going to come here and when he comes he will disclose to you what he hears intimated from me he says he won't speak of his own accord he never has the Holy Spirit didn't speak of His own accord at creation. He stood, if you will, as the sentinel of the Trinity. And as the Father would say, let there be light, the Holy Spirit would say, I'll be right back. And there was light. Psalmist says, by the Spirit of your mouth, Ruach, everything was formed and created. The Holy Spirit is forever posted, waiting to hear from the heavenlies what He is going to activate the next. And so when that verse says what Paul wrote, he's writing what John wrote. He says the Holy Spirit is here. He says, but it started with Jesus. We read it last week, earlier in this same passage, that we have a sense that I can be adequate in 2021. For three verse, uh, several verses earlier in verses 6, 7, and 8, it says it's from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. I can't shake that, beloved, that in 2021 we can stand and say whatever fear may present itself, I am adequate. Three times he says, he made me adequate. I'm empowered to be adequate. You're adequate for whatever 2021 will present. I'm not here to tell you what to get ready for. I'm here to tell you how to be ready for whatever comes. Because when my wholeness starts being informed by Him, my heart, oh goodness, Lord help me this morning. More and more I'm asking God when we come here, Do your thing. Do your thing. You need transformation. I want to say, if I didn't say it a minute ago, it's, uh, I, I don't think I ever got to it. My next definition of worship. Worship is living in the constant state of transformation. Why would I say that? Listen, it's not just a clever phrase. Worship is living in the constant state of invited transformation transform me, transform me, transform me, okay? Now, Romans chapter 12 is the second place 
where he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable, I believe this says spiritual, but it's alternate translation, which is your reasonable service of worship. And don't be conformed to the world, but here it comes, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the second place it's used, and it's used in the context of worship. So I want to get, when you merge these two places, please hear this. Transformation is living in a constant, excuse me, worship is living in an invited state of transformation. Lord, so you're going to laugh about this. Do you think God can't transform you while you're driving in traffic? Just drive in Sevierville traffic on a Friday after 3 o'clock. You'll have the opportunity to hear from both sides of the equation. I think I hear from the dark side more than the side and light. So, Do you think God can't transform you tomorrow at your workplace? With that person that gives you grief? I guess I can stop with this. In John chapter 2, Jesus enters the temple, his first public expression of ministry. And as he enters the temple, he notices that they're selling doves and animals for sacrifice. Extra biblical commentary tells us that they were reselling them over and over again because at the time that sacrifices were offered, not everyone had a lamb or a dove or a goat or whatever was needed. And so they would come and purchase a sacrificial creature. Allegedly, that's the story behind it. And in having done that, they had essentially reduced worship to just another marketplace expression. But there's something unique in the John passage It says he turned over the tables and drove them out of the temple. And he said, you have places in the street to do business. This is not just, and here's how he says it, this is not just another place of business. Two years ago this month is when I first came across that. That worship is not business as usual. Worship will never be business as usual. You see, the temple was the second created place of worship that God had designated. The first one was the Garden of Eden. Listen to me. We're going to stop right here. The first place in the Garden of Eden was a place where mankind could meet with God in an unbroken fashion face to face. Scripture says on a regular basis, daily, he would meet with, they would meet with him, we've studied this phrase, at spirit time. I don't have any time to chase that. But at spirit time, they would have an encounter with God on a daily basis. Unbroken encounter until they listened to a different opinion. They listened to different words, and those words displaced the words of the Father. And so they found themselves hiding from God, and they never came out of hiding. As we studied here, Jesus came to reinstitute that worship. And so when he would say in the, in the worship chapter, John 4, that those who worship, worship in spirit and in truth, that word means to unhide. Yeah. 
And what a beautiful picture of God saying, I'm trying to solve the problem. But the second place of created, God created the Garden of Eden as a place of unbroken, unmitigated worship. And of course, it would be many years after that, as a new covenant would be extended, that God would create a second place where his glory would reside. And that would be the temple of God. Here's sort of the poetic picture for me. In Luke chapter 10, we get one of the only glimpses of Jesus in what theologians call, I don't know of a better way, so just indulge me saying it, but the Christological pre-existence statement. What on earth does that even mean? It's Jesus making reference to his existence prior to being in the flesh. It's one of the only places, if not the only one, that it's addressed. But it's when he sends out the 70 to share the good news, and they come back and they're saying, even the demons are subject to us by name, are subject to us. And he says, and Jesus responds and says, that's nothing. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's another ongoing verb tense. See what it says? I was watching. Like we studied several weeks ago, the light shines in darkness. Jesus said, I was watching. Why, why would he say that? You see, because the Son of God is indeed fully human and fully man. We can't ever reconcile that. Endless theological writings about trying to reconcile. At what point is the human and the man? And you can't. It just gets all crossed over. But listen to me. Jesus is making a statement. He says, guys, if you think the demons being subject to you is a big thing, he says, I was watching. I am watching. I was there when it, it's still seeing the effects. See, all of that that's there, Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, we read about that similar event in, in Revelation chapter, in, in, in the book of Revelation, been being cast down. But here's the thing that, that fascinated me is it gripped me that for Jesus, everything was just a moment ago for us. It, it, that's not an accurate way of saying it. You see, for Jesus in John chapter 2, as he would walk into the second created place of worship, just a moment ago, he was standing on the east side of the first created place of worship. Get this with me. I'm going to stop right here, but just get this with me. Just a moment ago. You see, for the Savior, just a moment ago, he witnessed mankind make a tragic mistake and accept a different opinion above the opinion of the Father, and he watched worship be crushed and broken. Just a moment ago for the Savior. Just a moment ago, he was there when he said, let there be light. And now he's come to say, I'm that light that's trying to shine into a darkness once again, but it's a spiritual kind. I've come for recreation to start over and do over where we started. Just a moment ago, I was there. Just a moment ago, I was there when the serpent slithered in and whispered. And I want you to know that I've just come out of the wilderness. I love that. And I've confronted him face to face. Just a moment ago, the first created place of worship was violated by a whispered lie. And so he walks in and he says, just a moment ago, I witnessed happen. 
And in this second created worship space, I won't sit idly by while worship is disrupted and it becomes just another casual thing. Let me flip some stuff over. Let me drive things out. And if I have a prayer, it's Father, come to the house of new hope and turn over whatever needs to be turned over. We need you. We need an encounter. We need transformation. We don't need clever liturgy or ecclesiastical tricks. We need an encounter with the Almighty every time we walk in and every time we utter a song of praise that says, I'm waiting here for you. God says, you'll never have to wait long. You'll never have to wait long. I have come to visit you. I have come to enter on the backside of the Word of God and take the Word that was preached and write it on your heart. Beloved, God stands on the edge of your life with a ferocity in saying, I won't stand idly by while worship becomes just another business as usual event in your life. More and more I'm asking God disrupt this, create holy awkwardness that we have to wade through and figure out our way through. We do not want to reduce you to some measurable vessel. Can I just tell you why we worship? And, and I've got, um, I've mentioned something and I've never had a graphic to put up, but I actually called a very overqualified person at the last minute. I've got to sweep all these things in a pile and hope the Holy Spirit connects them. This is the last thing I want to tell you. I've spoken and I've referenced holy again in the first two weeks of the year and why holy is important to us because what is holy determines the source of my worth. They're all tied together and worship, okay? Do you wanna know why you can trust God and why holy is important? Um, let me see how I can do this. Uh, the, the blue illustration uh, pyramid, can you put, everybody see that on the screen, is it big enough? We use this in marriage seminars for 30 years. It's from a counseling book that's probably 40 years old, if not 50 by now. And it's, we refer to it as the relational pyramid. You need to take a picture of it. If you're married, everybody needs to take a picture of it. If you want the graphic, I can send it to you. You can put it on the front of your phone as a screensaver. Okay, you need it. If you're married and with the person you're married, look at them and say, you need this, okay? Go ahead, it's okay to do that here. But you see where it says individual emotional health? That's the foundation of the pyramid. Now, if the goal is intimacy, and again, for every marriage seminar we do, we have fun because we'll ask the women to describe intimacy and we'll ask men to describe intimacy. For men, it's a much shorter journey. If you're laughing, you get that. If you're not laughing, ask your parents or someone. Intimacy is typically lands in one place. Now, women will have this diverse definition of, of intimacy that goes all over the place, that may have nothing to do what the man's definition of intimacy is, which is sex, okay? But I'm talking about intimacy in, in the deepest sense of the word in terms, and, and by the way, 
please get this, that, that sexual intimacy between two human beings is the deepest point of intimacy because watch what happens there. Biologically, life is inseminated in that act. There's no other act that inseminates life. And in the like sense, watch this. The reason you want intimacy in your relationship is because it's life begetting. I'm pointing at her right now. It's life inseminating. There's no one that inseminates life in me more than her. More than her. That's what marriage should be. I am here in the most intimate expressions. May my words be life-giving. May my actions toward you be life-inseminating. May my expressions and my love be that which begets life in you. It doesn't bring death. It doesn't bring a curse. It brings life. My relate. That's intimacy, beloved. But how do we get there? We need to understand that the degree to which a person enjoys some sense of individual emotional health will mitigate that. Let's take a dysfunctional expression of emotional health of being for sense in addiction, addiction to some chemical or substance. That's one we think of and can sort of mentally reference. The degree to which a person is held in the grip of an addictive substance will deteriorate that sense of individual emotional health because their centeredness is in a chemical or a feeling or whatever it may be. And so when you begin to communicate next level, there's going to be suspicion. There's going to be all sorts of things. Well, in other words, the spouse walks in and says to the spouse that's struggling with addiction at the end of the day, so honey, how was your day? What do you mean by that? I didn't mean anything. You see, and sort of guilt creeps between the cracks because oh, she's wanting to know or he's wanting to know where I've been, what I've done, if I went by the bar, if I did this or I did that, or maybe she sees something different in my behavior and she's now acting. When all she did was say, how was your day? And didn't mean anything more than how was your day. But if the individual emotional health is interrupted, is, is, is disrupted, watch that. Then communication is going to break down. Everybody got this? Free marriage seminar at the beginning of the year. Then the third one is conflict resolution. If I can't communicate, I can't resolve conflict. Are you aware that redemption comes out of conflict, period? The greatest conflict resolution event in all time and space is the cross of Jesus Christ where he came to resolve the conflict between the created and the creator. Please hear me. Conflict resolution, listen, did you notice um, hours of teaching on conflict resolution, but please hear me. Conflict resolution is initiated by the powerful, not the powerless. By every, by every, please hear, by every just expression, God could have remained in heaven and said, the problem's not mine, it's yours. I'm God, I've never changed. I haven't shifted, I haven't moved. You totally took and listened to a different voice and a different opinion, and you're walking your own way. But the love of God, see, beloved, I was telling you a, a few weeks ago, actually in morning devotions, that holy has another side to the coin, and it's love. Holy is the essence of love. Love is the function of holy. I love that. A holy God demanded the sacrifice for sin. Who was it going to be? You. But the God of love said, you won't be the one making that payment. I will. We have to have a God that's holy and a God that's love. Now, why is that important? Because love is its most pure coming from a source that is most holy. Love is most pure. It doesn't have an agenda. 
I was thinking this week on how important holy is to everything. And God bring it home in a, in a, in a, in a dynamic way. But you see, individual emotional health, I could also stick sort of an offshoot of that is personal integrity or personal wholeness. Did you know where you can measure a person's wholeness? It's between their values and their actions, between their words and their behavior. The gap that's between that is the wholeness gap, an absence of it or a presence of it. If I'm closing the gap between the stated values, in other words, I've determined that God is gonna be the source of all that I am. For everybody here, that pretty much is you say. So the degree to which you will live that is the degree to which there's personal wholeness. Everybody got that? The Word of God written on my heart. The reason why we have something the world doesn't have is it hit me this week. There is zero distance between who God is and what He does. The very first place he describes himself, he doesn't say, I am the I do. He didn't say, I am the I can. He said, I am the I am. There's zero distance between who I am and what I do. I I just never got that. When Moses said, why are you doing this and what are you going to do? I am the I am. What is that? have to do with anything. Beloved, if we understand that God doesn't love the reason that humans love, we have to have a reason. I can tell you all the reasons I love her. I love her for who she is after 41 years, but I can give you reasons it started. I can give you the first time I saw her, first impression. I can tell you all those stories, and I just can't say that I was like God. Just out of the greatness of my being, I knew that she needed me. God doesn't need a re- God doesn't have a reason to love because he is love. There's zero space between who he am and what he do. Zero space. Zero space. That means he is most holy. Why is that important? Because the world's going to challenge our holy at every turn and the whole thing is is watch that. You see the individual emotional health? Can I say this to you? The degree to which that individual emotion health is filled in or complete or healthy is the degree to which you will love because a broken person is going to love for selfish reasons. The degree to which I have a greater level of informed emotional health from Scripture, I won't love selfishly. I'm going to love as Philippians 2. I'm going to give to others. But you see, we have a God who is love. He doesn't need love. He just loves. There's no space between what He am and what He do. Why is that important? Because when I'm looking for my source of holy, he doesn't shift. I don't know what's going to happen in politics and economics and, and national or global health. I don't know any of that. That changes. The economics can go away. We could see a massive crash. I've said this for decades. There is no absolute guarantee in Scripture that we're always going to have a stock market on the upward trend and the economy will never crash. What happens if it do? What happens if it does? We may see that. You see, this can become a dangerous prayer to pray. God, I want to know holy. I want to know holy. 
I want you to be the center and the source. It's going to change what you write on Facebook and Twitter. It's going to change the things you're uproared about. Great. We need to be incensed by injustice wherever injustice happens. Jesus was that way. I get that. But at the end of the day, I may observe something and say, that's wrong. I'm going to do whatever I can to help make it right. But I'm not saying, oh my goodness, that means it's going to make me. No, it won't. We need to get our heads in place. We need to get our spirits in place. That worship is living in the constant state of transformation. Just a moment ago, the Savior would say to us this morning, the Spirit would say to us this morning, just a moment ago, I was in that first created space of worship. Just a moment ago, I was in the temple saying it's not going to happen on my watch. And Jesus, hallelujah, stands as that forever advocate sentinel at the throne of God. The Holy Spirit working on this end. Beloved, hear me. I've said this to you. Without, redemption, without transformation, the cross has no purpose. I mean transformation at the point salvation ongoing there's a word sanctification we talk about from time to time the ongoing work of transformation in our life if there's no cross there's no power for you to be transformed but if there's no transformation then the cross has no purpose i want us to be people of transformation stand to your feet please hallelujah thank you jesus Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.